Hi, welcome to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone, and today Noah has agreed to let me talk about four-chord loops, and I do not know how I convinced him to do that. <laughs> it was actually pretty easy. You just messaged me on the Slack and said, do you want to do an episode on chord loops? That that was... <laughs> <laughs> We're peeling back yeah. the curtain for the, the listenership on this one a little bit. I am a master manipulator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to get started, I think a good place, like all of our things, is for people that don't know, I mean, I, I feel like the name is pretty self-explanatory, but do you want to give a quick kind of explanation of what you're talking about when you say chord loops? Sure, that was actually exactly where I wanted to start too. But I think broadly speaking, a chord loop to me is a short harmonic progression that feeds back into itself. Like these are typically the most common thing you'll see is four chord loops because what well, we can get into why that is later, but there's also like three chord loops like Sweet Home Alabama, there's five chord loops like Sir Duke. But the thing that like I think sets them apart from traditional harmonic practices is that they're not really going anywhere else, right? They're creating their own sort of harmonic environment instead of creating a harmonic journey. That makes a lot of sense. And when you describe that, what I can think of like the best example of chord loops in action is any punk song. Yeah, no, it's like punk uses them a lot. And you see it a lot in rock, especially modern rock. You know, you see it a lot in classic rock too. Uh, but one of the things that I've sort of have been interested in, have been thinking about is sort of what the boundaries of chord loops are. Like if we take something like Linkin Park's New Divide, that's one chord progression, four chords over and over for the entire song. It's the Plagal Cascade. I think it's in G, which would make it G minor, B flat, F, C, but I could be wrong on the key, but that is the chord progression. But on the other hand, if you look at something like Depeche Mode's Shake the Disease, the chorus has this four chord progression that they play twice, but then the section ends and they move to a different progression. And there was a different one in the, uh, that set it up as well. So I'm sort of, I, I looked at that and went, this came up when I was doing one of my videos on chord loops. And I was looking at this as like, can I really call this a chord loop? Does this count? Basically, how many times does it have to loop in order for it to be called a chord loop? Yeah, well, I mean, does that matter? This is one of those areas like this just to sort of give people a little insight into how theorists tend to work is that the first thing we're looking for in this sort of thing is intuition, right? The question is like, does that matter? Is this a relevant part of what makes a chord loop? Do you have to hear it a bunch of times? Or does two count because it proves that it can feed back into itself? It just doesn't. I guess the real question is, do the models we've developed for looking at like things like New Divide still help when we're looking at things like Shake the Disease, you know? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Like, so theoretically, and I'm sure there's a song that does this, but like... Theoretically, I think probably the most famous chord loop is like the one, five, six, four, yeah. right? Yep. I'm sure there's a name for that. The axis progression. <laughs> but the one, five, six, four, if that only appears kind of once in if I don't know, I'm sure there's songs where it only appears once. But if they do, let's say they do a little, I don't know, middle eight. Shout out to middle eight. That <laughs> is the one, five, six, four or something. I feel like given how prevalent that is and some of these bigger chord loops like how prevalent and popular that is i feel like if you wanted to just do one loop of it people would be able to pick up on that and i feel like you would be able to kind of treat that similarly i'm not entirely sure yeah 
I hadn't really thought about doing it once before. That feels to me like so antithetical to the idea of a chord loop. But on the other hand, like if it's specifically such a recognizable one, like the access progression, you could do a pre-chorus. Then again, I, I think that's worth sort of, because we'll, we'll often talk about sort of, I say often, we don't talk about chord loops often enough in theory in general. But when we do, we'll often talk about sort of playing a progression, quote unquote, as a loop, right? And for instance, I did a video recently on the Plagal Cascade, and I was looking for examples that used it. This is one minor, flat three, flat seven, four, for those of you who know Roman numerals. For those of you who don't, sorry. But like, if we go back, I was trying to look for like really early examples. And one person suggested the song Throw Down the Sword by Wishbone Ash, which has this eight chord progression that starts with those four chords. And like, I was looking at that and I was like, I'm not sure this is really the same thing, right? It's the same chords, but it's not serving the same purpose. Yeah. Whereas if you look at something like Mad World is the earliest example I could find that uses the minor plagal cascade as a loop. And that is fundamentally, again, creating that sense of landscape and location more than it's creating a sense of journey. Although, ironically, journey used four chord loops all the time. But <laughs> Famously. <laughs> But yeah, I think if you look at using the chords of a loop only once, it's very hard for me to consider that a loop, even if it could feed back into itself. Like Again, two is sort of yeah. a really interesting question to me because like it has proved that it can. It hasn't proved that it's stable long term, you know? I think another interesting thing about this is kind of not just looking at the chords in a vacuum, but looking at how they play into the structure of a song. Like two repetition, four chord loop is actually is incredibly common as the chorus of a song. And a lot of the time, there's definitely things where, like you're talking about the sense of being able to repeat and go on. And a lot of the time you'll see live bands will like play a chorus and then do the chorus again, or on the last chorus of the song, they'll repeat the chorus twice or something like that. And I think that that kind of shows that these two chord loops are capable of that, you know? Like I'm yeah. trying to think of a song offhand, but I can't really conjure any but like yeah the, the double chorus is a pretty common way to end a song and it's certainly true that i think again if we're looking at the chord loop less in terms of like how it's used specifically in being this long thing and more about sort of the effect it has the capacity to take a chorus and just double it implies that this four chord progression is serving as a loop yeah exactly that's kind of exactly what i was saying on that and i think a lot of kind of pop rock like poppy choruses are specifically kind of built to be able to be repeated and played over and over again and so i think that i'm more comfortable calling that a loop than i am of an earlier example maybe of like a middle eight yeah. or a pre-chorus or something like that like there is something about a chorus and about the kind of way that the song is constructed that really encourages you to be able to loop that. And I mean, often I'll get like the chorus of a song stuck in my head and in my head, it'll just be repeating the chorus over and over and over again. Yeah. And this, this was actually not something that I was planning to bring up, but it reminds me, the thing you were saying reminds me of a model developed by Dr. Asaf Perez called Sonic Functions. He's sort of one of the big voices in music theory right now for like seriously analyzing pop music and he's been a pretty big figure in that and also in terms of like popularizing it he runs the blog top 40 theory and does a bunch of stuff with that but his sonic functions model is basically a way of 
looking at orchestrations and arrangement and dynamic levels and stuff as serving similar roles to the way we would talk about harmonic functions. And so he sort of breaks songs and song sections up into three main categories where you have like the setup, which is the baseline, usually roughly the verse. We'll use the analogy. It's basically a verse. And then you have the buildup, which is the pre-chorus and then the climax, which is the chorus. And I think the thing about like setups and climaxes is that they're both infinitely loopable in that same sort of way and so you can take a verse and you could just keep going and if it has four chords the fact that it happens to be short when it's played doesn't mean that it couldn't be longer and still doing those same four chords but if you look at like a pre-chorus it's much harder to imagine like a four chord pre-chorus being looped because it's building up in the same sort of way and it has the sort of directionality that's pointing you to the next section and so i think in the same sort of way if you look at the way chord loops are used they tend to not really fall in those build-up sections or at least the things that happen in build-up sections don't tend to feel like loops because they're not being used that way part of that too is just the nature of these loops is they kind of have a resolution within themselves right whereas generally your pre-chorus section you're you're not really interested in having your pre-chorus resolve itself you know you want to build it into the chorus yeah. and get that catharsis when you hit the big chorus i think when we're talking hypotheticals with chord loops my mind is kind of instantly jumping to sampling and the world of hip-hop where a lot of the time, not as much these days because copyright law kind of tanked a lot of hip hop sampling, but especially in like early hip hop and in the golden age of hip hop, so much of it was built around kind of sampling these little clips and turning them into these repetitive loops. And a lot of the time, I mean, you still see it a fair bit today, but not quite like you used to. Like people used to just plunder all kinds of old soul and rock and roll records and stuff like that. And it's really interesting to think about that stuff where in these songs, you have these chord progressions that may be kind of like Apache or something like that. I don't know if it was intended to be able to be kind of looped like that, but the very nature of hip hop and especially turntablism is all about finding that little bit and turning it into that loop yeah. infinitely kind of deal. If you look at the history of chord loops, because like a lot of the most famous samples in my head are like drum breaks. It's a similar philosophy yeah. with a different specific mechanic, but that's not to say that it's fundamental. It's just sort of focusing more on a rhythmic element than a sort of harmonic element and it's it's i think in a lot again the same philosophical approach it's taking this thing that was maybe would maybe have been used at a different time to be this interlude and instead being like no that's the structure that's what we're going to build this on and just taking say this drum break or whatever and playing it over and over for the entire song to give you this again rhythmic sort of landscape that you wouldn't necessarily have had in the actual piece yeah actual piece isn't fair original piece is what i meant in the same way like we can take this is actually one of the things to go back to my plagal cascade work in researching this i found something pointing me to i believe it was sati's gymnopedy i don't know how to pronounce that i tried i have only ever seen that in writing but uh one of those contains those four chords in that order yeah ish different qualities complicated qualities but that root motion and this is like 70 80 years before the earliest example i could find of like rock musicians doing it because obviously at the time rock musicians weren't doing anything they didn't exist yet but it was interesting to see that but on the other hand it's like putting it in this loop context gives it such a different feel it again i keep coming back to this journey versus landscape thing but 
it is, I think, a really important way of understanding modern approaches to harmony as opposed to sort of classical approaches to harmony is that in classical music, a lot of the time the chords are trying to take you. You start somewhere and then you go on this long winding journey that will eventually lead you to some ultimate conclusion. And that's just not how modern music uses chords for the most part. Obviously, there are exceptions to everything. I think it's interesting, though, because I'm my mind's just running wild on kind of like bits of classical music, other bits that you could kind of pull out and turn into a loop. And I immediately start thinking of like Holst's Jupiter has the like bum, 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 bum. And that feels kind of infinitely loopable. And it kind of does this loop thing in the song. But again, I don't really think I would call that a chord loop. No, I mean, that's honestly like one of the things that really interests me about chord loops is that they are this sort of fundamentally modern idea. And I say modern in a fairly sort of long time sense. You know, I'm talking about like the 50s and 60s. Post-war. Yeah, compared to a lot of what we do in music academia, which is just like drooling over Beethoven, it's pretty modern. And this thing is a very new sort of way of thinking about harmony that like many parts of modern popular music, is heavily influenced by the traditions of the African diaspora, especially the blues. Mm -hmm. And if you look at sort of the way the 12-bar blues, and the 12-bar blues is not a chord loop, or I would not call the 12-bar blues a chord loop. I think that it is usually, it's too long and it has too much specific motion to it, I would say, to really fit into the same sort of category as modern chord loops. But obviously, there's a clear lineage there. What about something like an eight bar blues, though? Again, to me, it sort of comes down to usage more than length. Yeah. When I think of blues progressions, I am thinking of like motion and locations. And those locations happen to repeat. Yeah. But they don't feel like they are designed to me to create a specific overall landscape so much as to be a series of stops right like i think one of the big things like if you look at a lot of 12 bar blue stuff and like a lot of blue stuff in general at the end of the structure you'll usually have what's called a turnaround yeah where they sort of go to the five chord and it's this whole big like event effectively that sort of separates out the individual instances of the looping progression and that's not really a thing we do very much in chord loops because the point is to be a little more even in your resolutionary strength. That was a super pretentious thing to say, but I could not think of a better way to say it. The other question that comes to mind that I have no idea how I feel in this, so I'm going to put you on the spot again because I'm <laughs> having fun with this, yeah. is what about something like Bebop, where you kind of introduce a series of changes and then... You open it up and there are these chord changes and different members of the band are kind of just trading off soloing over these same repeating chords. So if we're thinking of something like, you know, the traditional AABA 32 bar thing, I wouldn't necessarily view that as a loop just because there's so many things happening. Yeah. But I have in the past, possibly controversially, I didn't read the comment section on this video. I assume people were mad at me, but I don't know for sure. But I have compared chord loops to giant steps. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which I think, you know, it's not the same thing, right? I'm not saying that Giant Steps is a chord loop, but you sort of have these three chords that you're cycling through and you have some other stuff guiding you along the way, but they're not really the important parts. You're sort of going from like, what is it? E flat G B? I think it's, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, you're sort of cycling through those three chords and you're just sort of moving along the way and it has that same sort of like landscapey effect to me especially because when jazz players talk about it they'll often talk about sort of playing like thinking in those three keys but like it goes by so fast that you're sort of like shifting between them so often that you don't necessarily really feel like you're grounded in any particular key at any given moment you're just sort of like okay now i need to think about e flat major now i need to think about g now i need to think about b over and over and over really really quickly and so it sort of has the same sort of effect of just like shifting between like positions along a loop that a chord loop does yeah and so i think there's philosophical connection there that shows that they're connected to the same basic ideas even though i would say that they're not necessarily again i wouldn't say giant steps is a chord loop but i would say it's much more a chord loop than say lullaby of birdland my always go-to jazz example everyone should start taking a drink when you mention lullaby of birdland or Jackson Brown. <laughs> Look, it was the first jazz song they ever made me sing in college. And so in my head, it's what jazz songs are. I stand by that. So here's another example that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. What about something like Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears, where there's kind of just the two chords, which, by the way, one of my favorite chord progressions in all of music. And I feel like you almost kind of get the satisfactory resolution of a chord loop in just those two chords repeating over and over again. Yeah, so this is something that uh, Dr. Philip Tagg, who is sort of the big name in chord loop theory, what he called a shuttle. A shuttle? A shuttle, yes. Like a space shuttle, but for chords. Yeah. The example he used was the Great Gig in the Sky, where you have this middle section that is, I think it's, uh, what is it? F sharp minor seven to C seven over, or F sharp minor seven to C sharp seven, or is it F minor seven to C seven? I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember keys. Keys are the least important thing to remember as a music theorist. It's basically a minor seven chord going up a perfect fourth to a dominant seventh chord over and over again for like over a minute. And, you know, you can look at that and if you apply like a really traditional jazz lens to it, you might look at that and be like, well, that's a two five, right? But of course, it's it's not really a two five because it never goes to one. It never even tries to go to one. Did I say F minor seven to C? I did, didn't I? I meant C minor seven to F seven. All right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Keys don't matter. Neither do chords, apparently. Point is, you have this like this two five and it's not again, it's not really a two five. It's more again behaving like a chord loop and if you look at the way tag then develops his model of chord loops what he winds up doing is defining these four different positional functions that chords can have where two of them are sort of like the two parts of a shuttle right yeah you have like the main starting chord and then the main sort of departure chord which he calls the tonic and medial and then you have these two other chords that exist to sort of like fill the gaps between them right so when we say like one five six four we can sort of view that as going back and forth between one and six. And then the five and the four chords are just sort of like pointing you along the way. It's like, oh, we're going here now. And then, oh, we're going back there. But there's sort of these two main primary points in the loop that have this sort of elevated positional function. That's really interesting. Another thing just with the idea of, and maybe this is just because you said space shuttle, but with these kind of two chord loops, I actually think generally a song that's really interesting kind of from like a loop point is Starman by David Bowie, where you have those opening chords. They only play twice, but they definitely have that shuttle feeling. And then it's one where, to me, Starman, the verses actually 
feel a lot more like chord loops. There's a lot more kind of going on in the chorus, but the verses have that very kind of repetitive chord loopy thing going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the verse to Star Man sounds like. It's been a while since I've heard that song. The verses, the didn't know what time it was, the lights were low, oh, oh. I, le- I cannot sing it in tune because I cannot sing in tune, but the lean back on my radio, some cat was laying down some rock and roll, lot of soul he said, and then they do the bon, bon, ba-da, ba-da. Like there's like a little turnaround at the end, but then it goes back into this loop. And I, I mean, I don't even know if the turnaround counts as part of the loop or how you would qualify that. Yeah, and I mean, I just looked up the chords so I could sort of see it more in my head. But I think that sort of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of like the blues. Yeah. Where like the turnaround really sets up this big resolution to the beginning that sort of provides this point of delineation that I think most of the things that I would consider loops, a lot of the the impact of them is that there aren't these really strong points of delineation. And you see this, this is a part of the harmonic language too. Like we almost always... Like we, when we talk about like classical or jazz like theory, we're always talking about like five one resolutions. These are these like big, powerful, like massive, satisfying resolutions. And you just don't see them in rock. And you especially don't see them in four chord loops. There's always exceptions, but you usually don't see them in four chord loops because, again, they sort of create this point where you're like, oh, this is the one chord. Now we are done. And the loop kind of always wants to be preparing you for the next motion if that makes sense yeah i think that makes sense so do you have any other kind of insights on chord loops or in your mind what is it about chord loops that fascinates you so much about them again i think the thing that really draws me to chord loops is that they are so fundamentally modern and so fundamentally different from the way that we talk about chords in a lot of older styles, even again, like we talk about classical, but also jazz, like jazz doesn't really do this sort of harmony very often. But I think the thing, and this is sort of where my own sort of quote unquote scholarship comes into this. I say, quote, it's scholarship. I'm going to call it scholarship. I'm going to give myself some credit here. The big thing that I've sort of been pushing in the world of chord loop theory is this idea that when you're looking at a chord loop, what matters isn't so much what the chords themselves are, but more what the transitions between chords are. Like you have these sort of, you can think of it less as this progression that's leading you somewhere and more as like four transitions that have certain impacts. And the shape of those transitions and the strength of those transitions plays a huge role in determining what the chord loop sounds like. And this is something like, honestly, I was surprised when I went back to like, because I got really into four chord loops like last year. I've been doing a lot of stuff since then. But like I had done one like a couple years earlier, I think in like 2018 or something. And when I went back to these videos, I was finding like, again, I, I was talking about like, creep uh was one of the Mm. ones i was using and i was like if you look at creep if you try and do creep in any sort of like real single key center way it's really weird right like none of the chord motions like two of the chords belong in the same key right like g major and c major could both be part of g major or c major they actually are in both keys but like you have a b major in there which isn't a part of either key you have c minor which is also weird and so if you're trying to do it from like an old school like tonal approach like none of this makes all that much sense but if you're instead like breaking it down especially because creep is so slow like 
I think it's six seconds per chord. It might be eight seconds per chord, actually. But because it's so slow, each chord transition feels like its own similar event. And it feels like something that you can understand in its own context without really thinking about how it relates to yeah. the other two chords that aren't a part of it. And that is the thing that gets me really excited about chord loops. Again, because this is something that I worked out roughly on my own. This is actually one of the big things that bugged me about Tag's model was that he seemed to be missing this, that this wasn't really a significant part of how he was looking at chord loops. And his model wound up not providing any real sort of quote unquote normative behaviors for the functions he was defining. That is like, I didn't feel like he was telling me what an outgoing chord did, right? Like what sorts of chords would be in an outgoing position, like how that would make me feel. And that was something that I wanted to try and fix. So the work that I've been doing in this, what I've been trying to figure out is like, again, what behavior would I expect from a chord in this position? And what I sort of worked out and built was this idea that you had either strong or weak harmonic motion. And this is a pretty well-established idea, right? Like I think a lot of music theory does acknowledge this idea that like, you know, certain chord motions are stronger or weaker. And we tend to learn basically is that, you know, the strongest motion is motion by perfect fifth or fourth, if that's the same thing. And then you have motion by step, and then you have motion by third. And so I decided to group those first two as strong harmonic motion and say that if you had those, you would get sort of this arrival effect on the second chord. You sort of get a resolution-y thing, although I did distinguish between resolutions and classical resolutions because I think that's important. But then you have like weak harmonic motion, which doesn't. And what I did was look at loops in terms of like where that strong harmonic motion tends to fall. And you tend to see some pretty strong patterns. Like for instance, the outgoing chord rarely is approached by strong harmonic motion, right? Because the point is that it's taking you away from the tonic. And so you get this sort of motion away and you don't want to feel like you're coming somewhere. You want to feel like you're going somewhere. And and looking at it in that sense, I think, gives a more complete picture about how chord loops work. That's really interesting. I think all of this is kind of symptoms of people writing songs who don't really have any kind of theory training and people just writing by ear and writing what sounds interesting to them. And I think that's something that's especially very common for people. And I think part of the reason why you see this in rock so much is that's really common for people on guitar. On guitar, I mean, I have like written songs on guitar that don't fit into any specific kind of key or structure and are more just like, oh, here's a chord I like oh, this move here sounds kind of neat. And there's this kind of intuitive aspect, this intuitive way that these songs are built. And I think your model is really interesting because it's kind of this way of trying to quantify what that intuition might be. Yeah, and that's like a big part of music theory in general. Like, I think there's this sense that we're trying to outline like the rules that people followed in a conscious sense. And that's just not how it works. But like fundamentally like, this is the thing we talked about a bit back in the last episode with adam was this idea of enculturation where sort of you just by being a part of a musical culture develop a sense of what sounds good and so and that sense is very instinctive it's very intuitive it's not something that you could necessarily consciously explain but like i could play you like g major and then D flat diminished seven. And you would hear that and be like, that is not a chord progression that I like very much. Probably, I don't know. I don't know you. That's not true. 
but maybe that's a bad example. But I could play you chord progressions that just did not fit with the way that you think about harmony. And you would hear them and be like, okay, that's not a good chord. But I could play you ones that do fit with that idea. And you hear that and be like, that sounds nice. And you couldn't necessarily tell me why it sounds nice, but like it just feels right. And this is a thing that like you see a lot when we talk about like, Again, the axis progression, this one, five, six, four, is that I think for quite a long time, this was not really something people were doing on purpose. Yeah. Like it wasn't like super intentional to always do this exact progression. It just works. And it works in a way that like speaks the language of chord loops while still tying into the vocabulary of more traditional progressions. So it serves as a really useful cultural bridge to develop that chord loop language without already being so weird that you don't have another way of explaining it and that i think is part of why it became such a big thing well yeah very much kind of what you were saying about enculturation there is the way this works is kind of a generation of rock and rollers came up in the 50s doing this kind of stuff then the next generation like the beatles the stones all of those they just picked up guitars they listened to these people playing these and they didn't know know anything about harmony or anything like that but they knew what they liked and what they liked were these chord loops and i mean early rock and roll was birthed out of blues and jazz yeah. and country as well i guess but all of that's really birthed out of the blues like you were saying with the kind of origins of these chord loops and it's this very organic growth where it's not like suddenly everyone's like oh i'm gonna start writing chord loops it's just generation after generation see their idols doing this and then play music that they think sounds good because that's what their idols sounded like and then a few generations onwards it becomes this kind of codified part of almost all like popular music right now there's chord loops everywhere in it because of just this natural process of amateurs drawing influence yeah, and that's, I think, one of the, the things that, like, music theory tries to do or should try to do, at least, doesn't always, but it's sort of, like, looking at that process, taking it at its word that this is a real thing, and then developing models based on that. And that's part of what got me so excited when I first read Tag's book, was that it felt like the first time I'd really seen someone do that with four-chord loops, right? Like, you've seen, like, attempts to analyze four-chord, or I've seen attempts to analyze four-chord loops. I don't know how much abstract music theory stuff the average ghost listener has seen but you know you see a lot of this stuff where people will sort of try and analyze the four chords of a loop based on you know functional harmony or whatever and i've done this like this is not an uncommon way of approaching the topic and it works but it also doesn't because again it's trying to speak a different language the chord loop isn't really trying to be a functional classical progression because again that's not the culture it's growing out of and so when you look at music theory engaged in these topics i think it's really important to look for things that start from the assumption that the four chord loop is a structure and that it's not just a coincidence that this thing keeps playing over and over again because those are the ones that are going to give you the best insight into what that structure is. I agree. I think a lot of the time people kind of, we've said this before, music theory is descriptive more than it's prescriptive, right? And I think this is a great example of this where like music theory is not inventing the concept of the chord loop. It's putting a name to this phenomenon that has just entered into everywhere in popular music. And that's, I mean, that's fundamentally what we do is we put names to things that already exist, which means we're always going to be lagging a little bit behind. That's sort of the nature of the beast. But, you know, it also is worth trying to lag as little behind as you can. 
I think that's generally true of a lot of academia, but I think there's also, I mean, I think we're finally reaching the point generally in wider culture, not just music theory, but especially in music theory where like people are finally starting to understand that like popular art pop culture is art you know and i think that's the modern age those boundaries have really dissolved i mean for you it's got to be kind of exciting to be a music theorist at a time where music theory is finally starting to kind of open up and acknowledge these new phenomena and come up with new frameworks to explore them rather than kind of just trying to shove the Beatles into a Beethoven box. Yeah, because of how long it takes to get like a PhD and a professorship and whatnot, we're sort of still in the first generation of music theorists who really grew up with this sort of music. Yeah. And so we're way behind on that. We might be in the second generation by now, but not very far into it. But like, for the most part, the people who are doing music theory today are mostly people who started getting into music theory maybe roughly around when like rock was just starting to become a thing more so than rock i think what you're really seeing is the first generation of music theorists that grew up with hip-hop like that is i think the real turning and also like who grew up with the sort of modern conception of pop I think there's also going to be a kind of generational lag because there's a generation that grew up with rock and maybe some of them were interested in kind of like putting rock into the music theory canon and stuff like that. But they're going up against an old guard that don't like rock. And so with academia, there's kind of this slow turnover rate where it's not like suddenly one generation rises up and gets all of the power in academia. It's that you kind of just need to chip away until the dam breaks. And I feel like right now, and I think the internet is a big reason behind this, the dam is finally kind of starting to break. And I think YouTube and like online music theorists have been really great for this stuff because suddenly you can put these thoughts out there without having to go through the kind of dry rigors of academia and the bureaucracy of it all. For sure. I mean, I'm certainly hesitant to give YouTube too much credit because I do YouTube and that feels like it would be very easy to convince myself that I had a bigger impact than I did. As an objective third party, I'll say YouTube is very important <laughs> and YouTubers <laughs> are are nice, smart, important people. Since I started talking seriously about four chord loops, since I started publishing my own like work on that, I have seen a non-trivial number of people, especially like sort of people early on, like not like PhDs or whatever, they were already doing their research projects. I'm not going to claim to have influenced them, but like people who were like starting to get into theory or like like high school students or undergraduate students who have like gotten into four chord loop theory because I pointed them in a direction that they could then take the ball and run with it, right? As always in all of this, I would like I always want to be clear, like standing on the shoulders of giants and whatnot. Yeah. Like everything I did was me just making a couple tweaks to Dr. Tag's work. Like I'm not gonna claim that I invented four chord loop theory. And I'm not gonna claim that I invented popularizing it either. Like people have been talking about it before me, but it's like I've seen quite a few people be like, Oh, I'm going to be looking into this because 
12 tone got me interested in it and so I, I do think that like the popular media around this like it's one of those things like if you look at like public music theory in general which is sort of the in academia term we use for people like me who do stuff like what i do yeah. like if you go back before like this generation of stuff the people you're looking at are mostly people like bernstein yeah. who was doing classical music and like most of that like public communication on this stuff was pretty classical like sometimes there was jazz stuff but it was mostly classical and so i mean i think a lot of the youtube thing like the, that we focus a lot more on popular and rock music is as much a reaction to a shift in both academia and popular culture as it is sort of shaping those shifts but i think that we're able to do that in part because there is more interest in people doing that and then also us doing that helps provide validity to that interest it's definitely this positive feedback loop where i'm sure there's a lot of people that until they saw kind of one of your videos or a Vox video or one of Adam's videos or something like that, didn't really even consider approaching popular music with that kind of framework. It's exciting to, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a part of it because I'm not really a music theorist, but I'm tangentially kind of related to that. And I think that that's something- You can come along for the ride. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> this podcast makes me an honorary music theorist, I guess. <laughs> this is my first published work on four chord theory. <laughs> I told you, you have the most viewed music theory video on YouTube. That's the problem. The one where I wrongly describe what a triplet is. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine it still counts no one knows what a triplet is <laughs> next up on ghost notes what are triplets <laughs> i think broadly kind of what you're talking about with kind of four chord theory is really neat because i don't think this is like the first or last or only framework that is currently being developed to analyze popular music and to kind of figure out how to properly look at this stuff. And I think it's really neat because so often we're looking at this stuff with frameworks that are completely unrelated to how the people created them. And I, I think this is what I was getting at too, talking about kind of the amateurism of a lot of pop music creators. And I don't say that with any value judgment. I yeah. think the fact that so much popular music is amateur is really awesome. And that's what makes it great. And that's what kind of allows these cool, new, unique modes to develop you know these things that a classical composer never would have thought of because it doesn't actually really fit within a traditional music theory framework and it's just intuition i think that's super cool yeah that's again the thing that that gets me excited about this stuff and gets me excited about things like the sonic functions model and like all these other ideas is that like if you look at like old school classical music like a lot of it is based on very explicit rules yeah like there are things you are supposed to do there are things you are not supposed to do and to be a good composer and a good performer is to understand and follow those rules and to create and innovate within that restricted landscape and that's why i sort of think like rock and pop in a lot of ways are maybe better viewed as a folk tradition oh absolutely because they are very much based on sort of implicit understandings of the rules and i think that that can very easily be sort of mistranslated into there are no rules and that i think is like one of the things again that really gets me excited about the four chord loop theory is that it is in many ways a way of understanding those rules because they do exist there are things that sound good and things that sound bad and we sort of all agree on them within a culture and you know people will come up with new ideas and they will push those boundaries and will sort of move the targets will move as time goes like i think if you went back to the 50s and elvis recorded a song with the creep progression 
fashion, people would be really confused. Yes. Like that wouldn't sound good to contemporary audiences of Elvis or like Chuck Berry. I want to hear an Elvis impersonator singing creep like, I'm a creep. I can't do an Elvis. I really can't do an Elvis. Yeah, I can't do Elvis very well either. (laughs) I'm a creep. Hey, hey, I'm a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think, again, the sort of underlying idea of music theory to me is that there are rules but those rules aren't rules right yeah that that sounds like nonsense but welcome to academia (laughs) but that's just like you have these ideas in these like again to use four chord loops as an example like you have certain behaviors that you would expect like the outgoing chord usually doesn't get set up by the tonic chord and that keeps happening over and over in most loops like not all of them but most of them it's like any kind of creative structure when you look at like film theory or something like that like the three act structure is a rule that isn't a rule or like planting and payoff like there's all of these kind of codified norms and it's definitely something where I think film academia is far ahead of music academia in terms of kind of accepting this stuff. Music theory academia moves very slowly. Yeah, I mean, we're still sort of in the shadow of Babbitt. Yeah, who's Babbitt? Uh, Milton Babbitt, mid-20th century theorist, who was a big part of why music theory still tends to sort of try and be a science in a lot of ways. Because he was trying to formulate things that he could prove about the way music worked and it didn't work. <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't prove it. <laughs> well, not in ways that are satisfying to it. You know, yeah. But yeah. Anyways, bringing it back to chord loops, do you have any kind of final thoughts on them? Anything that you didn't get a, a chance to say yet that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I did sort of want to shout out is a video by Patricia Taxon. Oh, yeah. I've seen this one. I would highly recommend it's similarly like she did some more work on chord loops i'm not going to say it was sort of inspired by mine i think she was working on it before i published mine but like she does builds on some of my ideas and like i wound up like doing a response video to her to sort of look at her model and i think that it in the same way that mine sort of took tags model and tried to sort of find more specific behaviors in it i think that hers gets even more granular about that and I think it's a really interesting, not necessarily alternative approach, but additional approach. I think that if you take Tag's model, my model, and Patricia's model, I think you can sort of layer them on top of each other, basically, and get different kinds of insight from the different models. And I think the most insight you'll get comes from applying all three of them because they sort of cover each other's gaps. And so, I mean, her model, basically what she did was she, again, like me, like looked at individual chord transitions. Like that was sort of the basis of it. And she was sort of looking at like, let's assume all of these have a directionality to them. And then she sort of grouped them into resolutions and departures, which wind up being a lot more subjective than my strong versus weak harmonic motion concepts, but give you a way to sort of describe the more subjective feel of the loop as opposed to my sort of more higher scale structure thing. So I would, if you haven't seen it and you're at all interested in four chord loops, I would definitely recommend looking that video up. That's so cool. It's, I don't know. I I feel like it's also rare because generally, I mean, historically, you don't really watch academia in action. It it happens very slowly and behind a lot of closed doors. But again, it's really exciting to be seeing all of theorists kind of engaging with this stuff and responding to each other and having this dialogue because when you kind of like shake the stereotype of the like tweed and bureaucracy 
That's the fun part of academia. That's what's really cool. Yeah. And this is a topic that I would not be surprised if somewhere down the line on Ghost Notes we wanted to revisit this because there's more advancements and more kind of theories and more approaches to it. And that's that's really cool. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a lot of areas where that's starting to happen. Hip hop is one that's like just now really starting to be a thing in music theory. And like that, that's really still in its infancy. But like it's sort of the same with like chord loops. There's like again, tag. Um, Ethan Hine has done some writing on them. And but like by and large, I think the most besides tag, the most comprehensive models of four chord loops that I'm aware of have been published on YouTube, not in an academic journal. And I mean, Tags wasn't published in a journal either. That was just a book he wrote. But like these sorts of conversations are sort of in a lot of ways happening on the fringes of academia and trying to push in. And it's to, to borrow your analogy from earlier, it's like it's the dam is breaking, but it's kind of breaking in slow motion. Yeah. Where like you're starting to get this critical mass of people being like, no, we need to look at this. We need to think about it like this. One thing that I th hope like and have seen theory doing and that I'm glad to see is sort of a move away from really focusing on just harmony. Like in general, harmony has become less important than it was in classical or a lot of jazz. Some jazz also doesn't care that much about harmony, but like jazz is very complicated yeah. and we cannot get into that right now. Um, these ideas like music theory has been so defined by harmony partly because it's so easy to build like clear consistent models around them but like again to go back to the sonic functions model this idea of arranging and orchestration and dynamics being these things that we can model or even like the thing that i just did a video about as of this recording which will be like two months ago as of you listening to this but about like blues lyrics and lyric formulas like the book that i like did that video about as far as i know the first real serious attempt to look at blues lyrics from a systematic structural standpoint was published in like 2006 i think maybe 2004 but like less than 20 years ago and there's been music theory scholarship about like lyric formulas beyond the blues and in the blues since then but that like these ideas of sort of looking at things besides harmony, but I also think harmony remains important and by far the most important kind of harmony in modern popular music is the chord loop. So what you're saying is that the kind of some of the oldest writing on this stuff is younger than Limp Biscuit's cover of Behind Blue Eyes? Exactly. I'm pretty sure that Tag's book Everyday Tonality came out <laughs> years after Limp Biscuit's cover of Behind Blue Eyes, which, yeah. by the way, includes a five-chord Yes. Loop. I assume the original did. I actually have not checked, but <laughs> I would be surprised if they changed the chord progression. But yeah, no, I think a lot of this theory isn't old enough to vote yet. That's wild. My question is that when is music theory going to be able to give us a comprehensive explanation of what the nookie is we're working on it we've got our top researchers <laughs> <laughs> all right this has been a really kind of enlightening conversation for me this is honestly something that beyond watching some of your videos i hadn't really put that much thought into and it's really cool to pick your brain and get your insight on this and it's definitely gonna change the way that i'm listening to these things in the future and i'm gonna have a an active ear out for interesting chord loops Really, at the end of the day, a lot of what I'm trying to do with this is just to like not necessarily be the one who finds the thing that is just like, this is what it is. Let's all use this going forward. But like create new ways to think about the music we listen to. I think that that's a lot of what good music theory does. Absolutely. So, yeah, glad I could do that at least a little bit. Well, you do fantastic music theory. <laughs> I do decent music theory. I do fantastic cartoon elephants. I mean, that's indisputable. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, thank you all so much for listening. This has been a really engaging, interesting discussion. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Ghost Notes Show on Twitter. So if you've got any thoughts on four chord theory, hit us up. And if you develop any models, do let me know. Like, I really want to see them. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. Take it sleazy. Bye.